The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Looking at 1 Corinthians uh, this morning, continuing our study in the book, uh, looking at chapter 7 uh, today. We'll look at the first half of this chapter uh, together. Let's go ahead and pray and just allow God to give our full attention to his word. God, we... Uh, we praise you. Uh, we thank you for the privilege of, of singing and gathering together. Lord, we don't take that for granted, especially now, uh, for the opportunity to, to be together as a body. What a gift it is. Lord, help us to understand how you've created us and how you've designed marriage and singleness for your glory. Just give us wisdom today. In your name we pray, amen. So if you grew up, grew up going to church on a regular basis, uh, many of you probably experienced things taught in a way that were unfortunately biased toward men and the culture surrounding them. Unfortunately, this passage has been used and abused by pastors and the church to really kind of put married women in their place, so to speak, when it came to relationships, especially physical intimacy. That type of mindset and others like it couldn't be further from the truth in scripture though. A simple study of both Old and New Testament characters help us, helps us to see that the Bible has always been clear in revealing ways that God has demonstrated an elevated view and role of women. So it's important for us to see that the Bible is counter to the culture. Our culture is just now catching up to the way the women should be treated, actually. And if you look throughout the Old and the New Testament, you see roles of women taking place through Scripture where God includes them by name, when in their own culture, they wouldn't have been included by name. And so it's important for us to recognize that, and we'll see some examples of that as we study today. It's also important for us to note that this book, 1 Corinthians, is a letter in response to a letter written from the church in Corinth. So you wonder why these things are coming up and some of them come up what seems like randomly in the book. It's because they were written in a letter from the church asking Paul for advice, asking Paul for instruction, and this is his response. This chapter, it comes on the heels of an intense admonishment uh, for, against sexual immorality, which we heard from Chase last week. And it's this deviant idea of sex in that culture that was running rampant in the Corinthian church, much like today. See, some people in Corinth, they had developed a negative view of sex and physical intimacy because of what was going on. What had happened was, and I don't know if maybe this sounds familiar, but what had happened was that the culture had taken over and basically everywhere you looked, it was just this deviant and horrible and sinful behavior regarding sex and basically got to the point where anybody that looked at that physical intimacy looked at it in a negative way and in an evil way. So there were really two views of sex that were common. Really, one was to avoid it because we're better than that, asceticism, or indulge all you want because life is too short, which would be hedonism. 
And some Corinthian Christians writing this letter or contributing to this letter had gone, gone so far as to cease physical intimacy in their marriage because it associated them with this sinful acts that were taking place in their culture. So Paul's trying to help them understand and, and kind of rewire their thinking to see that it's actually a good thing. And it's designed for marriage. And so this is where we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians 7. He addresses both married and singleness in the first half of this chapter, and he addresses this as a gift, that it's all a gift from God. So let's look first at 1 through 5, and then we'll jump down to 10 and 11 as well, dealing with marriage. Now concerning the matters about which he wrote, it is good for a man not to, not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Then jump down to verse 10. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. So there's some heavy things here. And again, if you look at verse one, the first part, he tells us this was an answer to a letter. This is an answer to a question. He says, now concerning matters about which he wrote. So if you take this passage in a vacuum and just by itself, and you will say that Paul is saying that physical intimacy is the main reason for marriage. Even if you look at verse seven, you can actually see that you could take that to say, well, this is why you get married, right? Because you may burn with passion in verse seven. But however, taking uh, that to be the only thing would really skew what marriage is about. Taking biblical instruction on marriage as a whole allows us to see the bigger picture. It allows us that, to see that intimacy has this role in the bigger picture of what marriage should look like. And it's actually a gospel role. For you young people here today, I see a lot of young people in the audience. And many of you are, have grown up going to this church or going to a church like you, I grew up in the church going Sunday morning, Sunday school, church, Sunday night, Wednesday night, every time the doors were open because my dad's a pastor so I couldn't really skip much church. And so I was there a lot. And maybe like you young people out there, you may view it like I did, which was anything taught for scripture, from scripture, most things taught from scripture were old-fashioned. They were like outdated. And it's for somebody else, like for the older people. What I want you to understand when we read passages, especially like this, that Paul's writings were countercultural. His writings were actually advanced, his writings were before their time. 
And even as we discuss some of these principles, these writings and this, these principles found in here are still continuing to be ahead of themselves, speaking against things that are cultural norms, that have become cultural norms, into something that's new and fresh and not following what everyone else is doing. And so for you young people, I would say embrace the scriptures. Don't see them as old-fashioned and things you've heard before because the scriptures come alive as the Spirit guides. So it's a new thing. It's pretty exciting. So for us, as we think about this scripture, if you look at verse three, it's important to see one little word there. It's a four-letter word called give. And Paul strategically places this word in this passage for a reason. You see, a male-dominated society at the time of this writing was used to taking whatever it wanted. I want it, it's mine, especially when it came to women. And so this right here is something that is, again, countercultural. We see scripture and biblical instruction as the antithesis of the cultural norm, bringing the wife into equal standing in the exchange of marital intimacy. This isn't a taking when you're husband and wife. This is the opportunity to give to one another and be able to see that marriage is meant to be a gift and specifically physical intimacy is meant to be a gift that you give husband, wife, wife, husband. So it's an opportunity to express love and not dominance when it comes to, especially then, especially was a male-dominated society. We can look at some more information regarding this in another letter written by Paul to the church of Ephesus. You look at Ephesians chapter five, you see a lot of great principles when it comes to marriage and some challenging ones as well that have again been taken out of context and used by unfortunately some pastors to to put down wives and to put them again in their place which is a horrible and evil thing to do. But if you look at this passage, we see in Ephesians 5.22, he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. There's a quote I found from an unknown author. It says, when a husband submits to the Lord, leading his wife with a servant's heart and nurturing her God-given talents, she can confidently submit to him, lean on him, trust in him. God has designed marriage for the man to take the lead, especially when it comes to spiritual things. And oftentimes, Scripture says that the wife will push against that. It's clear in Scripture to take that role away. But it doesn't mean that the man reigns as a king and the rest of them are subjugated and the rest of them are servants of what the man wants. It's actually the opposite. If you look again in Ephesians 5, you see it says, husbands, verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Somehow these people who have taken this passage to put women in their place or to make them have this feeling of inferiority have missed the next few verses of this passage. Because if husbands are loving their lives, their wives, excuse me, not lives, their wives as Christ loved the church, 
then the wife would naturally just say, yes, I trust your leadership. I trust your guidance. I can see what's happening here, and it's important for me to see this. Ephesians 5.33 goes on to say, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So when this is a regular practice in a loving marriage, then husbands and wives will be considerate of one another's needs, especially in physical intimacy. And when this is happening, you actually see it as a gift. You get to give this to your spouse. Instead of it being a competition or something I can withhold from my spouse or using it as a pawn or putting pressure on my spouse, and pointing to this verse, you know, and saying, see, see what it says here? But instead of it being this conflict, it can be a gift. It can be something that's mutual and loving and showing the picture of Christ. It brings us to be gracious in understanding each situation and seeks to, as Romans 12 puts it, outdo one another in showing honor. So there's no denying the fact that Paul sees physical intimacy as a major component of a God-honoring marriage here. Paul calls the withholding of intimacy with your spouse as an act of fraud. So you claiming to be something as a married couple, but withholding from your spouse, you are living a lie, a fraudulent life. Because you are supposed to be this example of Christ in the church, this example of giving to one another, but yet you withhold and sin against your spouse. He gives an exception, of course, here when the couple agrees to fast from this and fast in the way to be able to seek direction, seek guidance from God to grow closer to God as well. But he warns against this too. He acknowledges that certain spouses, depending on if it's the husband or wife, have a stronger desire and it could have implications in their walk with Christ when it's fasted from for too long. So it's important for us to see the value that Paul places on this. But to look at this passage as just relating to physical intimacy would be a failure. Author and speaker Gary Thomas put it this way, The union represented in marriage may be one of the greatest miracles in all of creation. But it's also something more, for in addition to everything else marriage means for a man and a woman, it has a deep spiritual significance, an eternal cosmic significance. At the very highest level, it functions as an unparalleled working image of the seeking and saving love of our creator and savior. The love that compels him to unite himself to his people in a mystical bond of eternal fellowship and never-ending interpersonal give and take. C.S. Lewis talks about this in his great book, uh, The Four Loves. He says, lust is going after the body, but love is going after the person. And so in marriage, we can often get sidetracked. And I know I've done this too, where you get sidetracked on the lust going after the body when the reality, what God wants from us is actually to go after the person. Just like we looked at in Ephesians 5. And when you're going after the person and their growth and serving them and loving them, then this intimacy takes place. But also in this section on marriage, we can't miss verse 10 and 11. Paul puts this in here kind of in the middle. 
of his instructions on marriage and singleness. Verse 10 says, to the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband. If she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband should not divorce his wife. So in this passage, when he says, these aren't my words but the Lord's, some have argued that this is like extra revelation, that in this passage, in this verse, there's like God speaking in a more emphatic way. But that can't be true of scripture. Scripture is God-breathed. It all is God-breathed and inspired. But what Paul is actually referring to is he's referring to what Jesus has already said on the matter. And he's emphasizing what's been said in Matthew chapter five from Jesus, in Matthew chapter 19 from Jesus, and in Mark 10 from Jesus on the subject of divorce. So he's emphasizing this and Scripture is very clear outside of infidelity, someone cheating on you in marriage, divorce should not be an option. Malachi 2.16 exclaims, God hates divorce. And we understand in this room or watching at home, we understand that there has been divorce that has taken place possibly in your life. And maybe mistakes or, or sin that has taken in place that has led to divorce. And we understand that. And we understand you can be redeemed and forgiven and restored. But for those of you that are married now, this is a great challenge. Here at TBC, when we counsel and get together and counsel in marriages, we never counsel for divorce. We never say, oh yeah, absolutely, you need to leave. Now, there are times where we counsel towards separation, especially in the area of abuse. But we never counsel for divorce. There should always be the goal to restoration. We understand if there's times where unfaithfulness continues, there is times for that. But in the scriptures, you'll see often in a study of scripture, that is an exception. It's an exception. It goes against what the world sees, which is your escape hatch, my escape button, right? So that we get into marriage and we marry that person knowing that in the back of our mind, we do have this option or things get really, really bad. And that's why we're, we're about to look at singleness where it may be a good idea for some of you young people that are close to marrying age just to hold off. And to really seriously consider, am I willing and am I able to make this commitment right now to marriage for life? And so here we have this challenge in 10 and 11. So when I study scripture, many challenging issues can be reconciled by really looking deep into one passage. One of my favorite passages is Philippians chapter 2. If you want to think about marriage and your relationships or maybe the future in marriage if God chooses to bless you with that, he, you can see in Philippians 2 an example of who Christ was, what he came to do, and what we are to adopt through his power, through the power of the Holy Spirit. A giving up of your life, a giving up of your rights, where Jesus came and had every right for people to serve him as the king, the king of kings, but instead he made himself a servant, took on himself the form of a servant, 
So now we have that same power to look not on our own interests, but the interests of others, including our own spouses. So we see a little transitional time here in verse six and seven, where Paul says in verse six, now is a concession, not a command. I say this, I wish all, uh, that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So Paul is saying here that both him being single and someone else being married is a gift. And he's saying, I understand that not all of you can remain single. But he's saying this is both singleness and marriage are an actual gift from God. So we can look at singleness now in verse eight and nine. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. I can't really get into that last part because I've heard a million different ways of this being translated, the whole passion thing and, and that type of thing, but for us to focus on, I think, the singleness area is important. The next three simple points on singleness come from an article, actually a sermon from David Platt. First of all, singleness is good. It's a good thing. If you look back at verse one, you can see he's saying in this mindset, look, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman outside of marriage. This is a good thing. And for us to see here also, if you look at Matthew 19, Jesus talks about it as well, and he exclaims in 19, 11, and 12, listen to the things he says. Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others were made that way by men, and here's it, here it is right here. Others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. So there is a time where singleness is good and even renouncing marriage for a time or maybe for a lifetime where you can focus on the kingdom and focus on sharing your faith and being a gospel-driven person. But not only is singleness good, it's also a gift. Platt says it this way, some of us have the gift of marriage at this moment and some of us have the gift of singleness. Though not necessarily a gift of singleness that will last 60 years. That may be a possibility, but maybe there's a day that comes when God exchanges the gift of singleness in your life for the gift of marriage. But listen to this last part. It's not exchanging one inferior gift for a superior gift. Now, I'll be the first to say, when it comes to my friends and other things, I've had a horrible attitude toward this and a non-biblical attitude toward singleness. Where I'll look at even some of my friends who are still single. I'm 46, I have some friends who are still single and kind of look at them and even ask, hey, what's going on here, right? And it's not a biblical way to look at singleness. It's actually a gift. And it's not one that's inferior and one is superior. So my wife and I, we talk about uh, the, the, the passages that are coming up that I've been assigned and have the privilege to come talk about. And this one, we've actually talked a lot more about. And it's a good thing because she understands me and knows that I've, I've needed some help this week to articulate my thoughts without getting myself too deep and possibly in trouble. 
because we can understand that there's some parts of this passage that are difficult to talk about. But she's really helped me understand this and one of the ways she helped me understand this even more is by this concept. It's kind of a little side note in the sermon is holidays are coming up. Thanksgiving is coming up. And our request to you who might be a grandparent or a parent is this. Can we avoid the undue pressure of asking nephews, nieces, cousins, grandkids close to marrying age the question, when are you getting married? Oh, thank you. Yes, thanks. Appreciate it. I see some heads nodding. I don't, that's an awesome response. I wish that we could get one of those more often. Uh, but the idea is this. It is really awkward. And we need to stop. I understand. And we're talking about this the other day on our little date night. We're out hanging out together. And it was like this. We understand. Look, there's small talk. You haven't seen this person in a year, maybe or maybe over a year, and you have nothing to talk about. You have no idea what's going on in their lives, so what pops out? When's the wedding? Do you have a special someone? Things like that that are really awkward. It's really awkward and weird, so I'm gonna ask you as a favor to those who are single, quit. Just stop. I know it's kind of funny, but it's really not. Because it's really awkward and it's actually unbiblical. So just settle down, figure out something to talk about. Maybe the weather, maybe how bad the cowboys are or the eagles. But uh, think of something else, okay? Because that is a favor and also biblical. So we need to be careful to consider what it means that singleness is a gift. I mean, some of us, we, we talk about singleness and think about it, and we don't realize that if it is a gift, there's a reason for it. We've been given this gift for a purpose. What is the purpose? Singleness is for God's glory. Just like a marriage is a gift for God's glory, singleness is also a gift for God's glory. I see some of uh, the TBC singles in this room right now. And one thing that comes to my mind, and I believe Dave would agree with this as well, our high school pastor, is that some of the most passionate, devoted servants of Christ in our youth ministry that exist are single. They have the opportunity and the ability and sometimes even a little bit more time to give to themselves to the youth in our church, and it's an amazing testimony of God's glory in our local outreach, in our children's ministry. Over and over again, I see the servants of Christ who are single taking seriously the call to bring God glory. Again, as my wife and I were talking about this, uh, one person came to our mind when it comes to someone who's devoted to God's glory and singleness, and that's Brenda McLaughlin, one of our TBC goers. She's been over in the Middle East for over 10 years. She's been serving, she's second from the left there, and she's been serving in a TBC ministry for over 10 years, not a TBC ministry, but a supported ministry, Oasis Hospital, which is now uh, Kanad Hospital. As an obstetrician, gynecologist, she's been the chief medical officer for the last five years there. And so we made sure to to kind of reach out to her and say, I, I asked her, I said, I want to get your insights here. I've seen God use you. I've seen God just kind of blow us away from back here to see how he's using you to step in for God's glory. So I asked her to share a testimony. 
And so you, you can hear these words coming from her, even though they're coming from an awkward dude, but you can just listen to them maybe with a different voice. It says, for me, one of the most important parts of singleness is being content with what God has for my life. I like how Paul describes in Philippians 4 about being content. I appreciate how he says that he learned to be content. When I was younger, I often wished that I was married, but as I have grown in my faith, the ability to be content in God's plans for me has allowed me to depend on him more and be able to rejoice in what he has provided. Also, I often think of the verse in Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I can trust that his plans, that his plans are working together for good. And she goes on to kind of preach a little bit of next week's sermon. In 1 Corinthians 7, 32 to 35, Paul talks about some of the benefits of singleness. One of them being that while one is single, he or she is able to have undivided devotion to the Lord. I think it's still hard to have undivided devotion, but I do understand that me being single allows me to spend more time in other relationships and leading in the hospital that I would not have if married. So although I would love to have a family here with me, I also know that in singleness I have other options to serve the Lord that I might not have had if I were married. So I pray that God is able to use the extra time and effort that I'm able to give to the hospital. She goes on to say, marriage is a very big part of cultures all over the world, but especially in the Middle East. When people ask me about being single and I can point to my contentment and the plans God has for me, I think in being a great witness to others about being able to rely on God to provide what you need. And listen to this last part and hopefully bring glory to God. So here she is a great grasp not only of the gospel, but her role that God has blessed her with as a gift. Piper says it this way, God promises spectacular blessings to those of you who remain single in Christ. He gives you an extraordinary calling for your life. To being single in Christ is therefore not a falling short of God's best, but a path of Christ-exalting, covenant-keeping obedience that many are called to walk. So as we wrap things up this morning, it's important for us to also uh, catch verse 12 through 16. We don't have a lot of time to spend on it, but it's an important part to address. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. Again, you see this, this concept here, I, not the Lord, just like up in verse 10. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? It's important for us to see here that even in a marriage that would be considered unequally yoked according to the Bible, where it's a a believer and a non-believer, that there's still an encouragement to stay together. That there's still this challenge to consider what does my life look like and are my actions pointing my spouse to a walk with Christ? Now when he's saying that they're pure, it doesn't mean that they are actually because the spouse is a Christian that the children are automatically Christian as well. Of course, we know that's not scriptural. 
But Paul does point out that the actions of the individual can actually be used in a loving way to point that person to Jesus. If they're living out the gospel calling on their marriage and honoring their spouse and loving their spouse, then they can actually draw them to Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now it's important for us to note though that this does not mean in a marriage if there is abuse taking place, whether it's mental, physical, emotional, that it can be used to go, uh, used against the spouse to stay and not separate. I heard of this recently where a pastor actually used this in a way that was negative toward a spouse, toward a married person to say, just stay and endure it because it's just a season of time in your marriage. How horrible is that? There are times where separation needs to happen. There are times for the safety of the person that that needs to happen. And we here at TBC, we love you and want to be able to help walk you through that and encourage you in your marriage. But here the challenge is in 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2, we can see a similar challenge. It says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. That a husband or wife that has an unbelieving spouse can actually be a testimony simply through their actions. It says here, it's not that whole mantra of like, well, just be the gospel, you know. It's not that. There actually needs to be words shared. And it says here, if the words aren't listened to, they're still out there. But through your action, you're able to actually lead them to the Savior as a result of the actions that you take of love. So we see here uh, kind of a large picture of marriage, of singleness, of, of people that are in marriages that are difficult. We need to understand most importantly today that it's all a gift from God, that there are things in our marriage, even though they're difficult and struggles, that it's still a gift because it's making us more like Christ. Even the difficulty, we don't learn a lot in, in the good times. We've learned a lot more over the past, I don't know, seven, eight months than a lot of you have probably learned in a long time when it comes to trusting in God, right? And so we don't look at negativity necessarily as not a gift. Sometimes what we should do is see it as a gift from God to learn from one another and to be able to learn how to love each other and to learn how to understand the gospel better and also to be able to give of our lives to one another. So a few questions to close this morning. Do you see marriage as a gift? Do you see your marriage and you as a husband or wife as a gift to your spouse and the opportunity to be physically intimate but also spiritually intimate, emotionally intimate? Is this the view that you take of marriage as a gift but also, do you see singleness as a gift? Have you been like me in the past where you've seen singleness as something, unfortunately, an inferior? Instead, do you see it as a gift for the glory of God, to be used by God? And lastly, do you understand that it can only be a complete gift if it's centered on the gospel? 
That a marriage that's not centered on the gospel is really something that's off. And maybe some of you feel your marriage is off right now because you've gone from center, which is Jesus Christ, and you've gone over here and gotten too busy doing other things and being involved in this, involved in that. Maybe not even bad things, but good things. But you've come off center. And you need to come back to the gospel, the foundation, and get rid of those things that are maybe keeping you as a family and as a husband and wife centered on the gospel. And even as a single person, have you missed out on the fact that it's a gift and the fact that life should be centered on the gospel? That all your actions as a single person should come out of your love for Jesus and what he's done for you. We have a lot to think about this morning and a lot to pray about. So I'm gonna lead you in prayer and then as Mark sings this last song, let it be a time that you do work and allow the Holy Spirit to do work in your life in these topics. Really consider maybe where you have sin and maybe where you may need to go and reconcile with a spouse or with a friend or a loved one and get things right according to what you've heard today. Let's pray. Dear God, we're thankful for your love. We're thankful for your grace and your mercy that even though we fail, whether it's in a marriage or as a single person, Lord, your grace is sufficient. Lord, help us to grasp the amount of grace and mercy that never ends. Lord, we thank you for your love. Convict us now and allow us to to really feel your Holy Spirit leading us to action as a result of hearing what has been said from 1 Corinthians 7 today. In your name we pray, amen.